Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Poddleters. I hope you're having an okay lockdown so far, wherever you are in the world. I'm excited to share with you this week's episode, which is with Hayley Narman. She is a writer and editor based in New York. So obviously, as usual, this was done via Zoom, but also not Zoom, Zancaster, but also... Um, across different time zones. Pretty exciting. Um, She used to be the features director and deputy editor of Man Repeller, and now she runs her own blog, Maybe Baby, which is how I found her when I read her blog post, The Emily Ratajkowski Effect, um, which was in response to Emily's essay on reclaiming her own image. And in Hayley's piece, she explores choice feminism, which is a concept I personally kind of battle with. Um, You know, is it right or wrong? Is that even the right question to ask when it comes to things like this? And I really wanted to discuss it with her because I loved Emily's essay when I first read it. But I found that Haley's was so interesting and impactful and it really made me think. So if you haven't actually read the piece yet, I would suggest reading it before listening to the episode. And I've linked it in the show notes. This episode was recorded a, free, a few weeks ago. So prior to lockdown and also prior to Emily's announcement of her pregnancy, which is obviously very exciting. Um, just in case you thought that's random, they didn't mention that. It is from a few weeks ago. As always, I do hope that you enjoy and please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Hayley Narman. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Just looking out my window in Brooklyn, the trees are changing, etc. What is the weather like with you? It's it's really dropped here and it's quite cold, but I've never been to New York, so I have to live through. Oh well, yeah, it's it's getting. I feel like fall came really aggressively. It just was like hot one day, and then suddenly it was sweater weather. So it's it's yeah, a combination played- of like good and bad because good because it's like nice to have novelty and a change and feel like the world is moving forward and bad because now we can't socialize outside so yeah what's your what's your regulations like because we've had this thing now changing where you can't meet up inside but you can meet up outside but as you said like when no one's gonna go to the park (laughs) this is really cold I know exactly I feel like people are really pushing it like there's space heaters outside of restaurants and stuff and people are having dinner in like full winter regalia (laughs) it's like a whole new culture is cropping up oh I love that but any excuse for dinner to be fair I would definitely you know wear my fattest coat just to get some pasta yeah it's Um, a nice it's it's a new experience yeah definitely so before we get into the conversation I wonder if you could give an introduction to who you are and what you do sure um I am a writer and editor based in New York. I moved here about four and a half years ago to work at Man Repeller. Um, I started at Man Repeller as a junior editor, and by the time I left was um, a features director or deputy editor, kind of both roles. Um, And I left in March, like right as the pandemic hit New York. Um, I just to go freelance <laughs> that, that timing was not on purpose, but so over the last six months I've been developing like, or 
maybe developing is too generous of a term. I've been figuring out how to um, carve out a space for myself in this industry that's not reliant on kind of the mainstream media outlets. Um, and so I started a newsletter called Maybe Baby in March. And it's really grown over the last six months. And I have about like 30,000 subscribers. And um, it's been really nice to just like write um, more freely because it's not ad run. So I don't, I'm not really beholden to any outside forces. And I feel like a sense of um, freedom to kind of talk about whatever I want in whatever way I want in a way that feels like really liberating compared to my previous work. Not that, not that my work at Manipeller wasn't, um, it wasn't like fun in other ways, but I just have found this kind of progression to be really satisfying. So that's what I've been up to. Well, congratulations. That's incredible. I mean, especially in the climate that we're in to have, you know, turned that around and really built such a big 30,000 subscribers to a newsletter is massive. Um, so really big congratulations on that. Thank you so much. That's also how I discovered you. So I, I came across you from your piece that you wrote in response to Emily Ratajkowski's essay. And I thought it was incredible. And as I just said to you before, I read it like three times. Um, it was really relevant to conversations that I have in my work, both on this podcast and a book club that I run. Um, and I just thought it was it was such an incredible piece. Is that one of the ones that you think has been shared most widely or what was the response in in coming back to you from after that piece because I, I can imagine that that would have been a difficult thing to write under a publication that that probably definitely needed the freedom of your own blog in order to get that out there. yeah yeah totally well thank you so much for the nice words I feel like that one is definitely the most popular it um it was the kind of my only newsletter that I think kind of had a moment on Twitter because a, a lot of my writing is it's actually shared a lot on Instagram. I don't know. I don't know where, if that's like something had to do with the tone. <laughs> I'm not sure, but, um, maybe cause I have a larger following on Instagram, but, um, this one, uh, I think it kind of makes sense that this one had its moment on Twitter because it's a little bit, uh, spicier, <laughs> which I'm, I, I feel like I have a lot more spicy takes in, uh, private than I do in public because I am, I'm, I'm very concerned with like mutual understanding and maybe like softness. And, and so I, sometimes I shy away or I want to make things as like digestible as possible for everyone and like not incendiary. So this was a little bit of a, a gamble. Um, but, and it did get some pushback for sure, but it also got a lot of, um, a lot of attention, I think, for maybe saying something that a lot of people were thinking. I had a lot of people reach out and say, like, I hadn't seen, um, I, I've, or I've been feeling like this way, or I felt a little off about Emily's piece, and it was really nice to see you articulate uh, kind of my private thoughts. So, you know, one benefit to kind of putting myself on the line in that sense. Yeah, and I, I completely relate to keeping the spicy thoughts inside. I, I agree. I don't. I also don't take pleasure in reading scathing articles. I don't feel like that's what this was. I think that's maybe why so okay. many people did did resonate with it because it didn't feel. I certainly didn't read it like it felt like a personal attack or, um, like you mentioned, some critiques that have that have had a lot of press for being, you know, quite cruel. And that it's hard sometimes to draw the line between when is something a review and when is it just kind of like a personal vendetta against the author that you're reviewing and, and I don't think that that this was on that level which is why I think I found it so impactful because I think that's a really difficult line to tread actually um 
especially as you say, like with tone, you don't know how someone's going to read it or take that delivery. And it's sometimes easier just to stay on the safe side and just not get involved um, with what can end up being quite like a messy scenario, I, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I wanted, I kind of want to be able to critique people without necessarily like attacking their character. It's something, it's a kind of like middle ground that I feel like is sometimes lost in like modern online discourse, which is this idea that you can respect someone and like some of their choices or some of their ideas and kind of critique other ones and they can do it back to you. And that's kind of like what a productive discourse can be. But now I feel like we're so, I mean, call it like tribalism or whatever, but I feel like we're really committed to like one side and supporting somebody completely or, or not supporting them completely. And, um, and yeah, I think sometimes we fall into a trap of like really homogenous ideas that like aren't, don't have enough nuance. Well, I think that's a really neat segue into what I want to talk to you about when it comes to choice feminism, because I think that as feminists, there's a real idea of tribalism where, as you talk about in the piece, there's an inability to critique within the movement in case that in of itself is seen is seen as being anti-feminist. And I think that you articulated something that I myself um, think about with myself all the time, and you also kind of make yourself complicit in it, and you kind of... you you considered that side of it as well but I think it's so well done because right now when it comes to modern feminism it's kind of it feels very safe that you're allowed to do anything and then say oh it was a feminist choice and then I realized that for too long I felt so comforted by this idea that I wasn't actually doing anything worthy of calling it feminist but I was kind of positioning myself as a feminist person online <laughs> but actually yeah what was I what was I really doing um when, when did you have you always had that stance have you always felt like you were able to watch this happening within this new wave of feminism or did you feel like you also had to have a moment of reckoning where you realized that I guess it's become so commercialized and so mainstream that some of us got can get caught up and forget the real point of why we even ascribe to this form of activism as it were. Yeah, I definitely went, definitely the latter. I went through my own process of realizing that I was focused on maybe the, the feminism that like most affected white women and like women of a particular life station. Um, like maybe you could call that like this kind of self-esteem side of feminism um, or maybe just like the individual impacts versus the kind of broader sort of intersectional economic issues. Um, I definitely had that awakening um, at some point in my 20s. And have like, and I think as I further learned about capitalism and understood like how marketing and all those things are intertwined with um, feminism, I, I think I've gleaned like a, a deeper and deeper understanding. Uh, like, I think that one of the problems with the, the like choice feminism is just the idea that that it's 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 very individually focused. So like some people call it like white feminism or girl boss feminism, or neoliberal or like lean in or choice. Like there, I think I think of these as all kind of part of the same type of feminism, which is really concerned with like individual action and individual empowerment. Mm. And where I always get stuck um, is these not being scalable. Um, so like you can be, you can go through like a hellish journey of like being oppressed as a teen. Like let's, let's just take like, let's even take the experience of like a white woman who, who's, who's 
financially comfortable. Let's just take her, if we take her problems, which might be like focus more on like body image or uh, self-esteem or feeling like, um, you know, she has to please the male gaze or something like that. Um, obviously talking about like maybe a, a cis straight woman. Um, if she seeks out liberation through like, uh, you know, taking control of her image and wearing makeup uh, to make herself feel better and, you know, buying the right clothes and like all these things that we might say are like empowering because she's choosing to kind of reclaim the narrative. It's not really like a scalable solution for other women or even for the next generation who are in her same position. It's like, it's, do you understand what I say, what I mean when I say like not scalable? Oh yeah, completely. No, I, and I think it's, it's such a big Pandora's box to open up because I also fell into this idea that, you know, if I could position myself and I, and I agree that all of the categories you just said, the lean in and the garbage and et cetera, that they are all the same concept where you feel like you're doing something good by, um, like man managing to traverse this, like, patriarchal capitalism that inherently doesn't have your best interests at heart but actually all you're doing is feeding into a system and making sure that you win you're not bringing up anyone else with you and you're not challenging the values of that system um so that, yeah totally yeah yeah it makes complete sense but it's such a pandora's box to open because um it really throws into relief then what are all these decisions that i'm making and if i can no longer kind of make myself feel better at night by saying that oh well it's feminist of me to do this then does it mean that I almost can't do those things? And you actually, one thing I thought was really incredibly valuable that you spoke about and also quite a big thing to do is I do paid influencing work on my Instagram because that's kind of where I started off. And you talk about how you actually, right. it became too uncomfortable ethically for you to carry on doing that. Um, and I think that's a really a big move because you actually are starting to make decisions based on this ideology that you've realized is, is flawed how much of a big decision was was that for you? Because you could have easily carried on and I'm sure that actually you wouldn't have been critiqued that greatly. So you must be really challenging yourself and your beliefs enough to make such a, a big move. If it was a big move to you, I don't know. It, to me, it felt like it would be exciting comparing it to my own life. But Yeah, I mean, I think that there were definitely times where I was turning down maybe like more financial comfort. But I will say that like, obviously you have to be you have to have a certain amount of privilege to like turn down money. Mm. So I think that like, yes, I think that, you know, um, there's, I don't think it really comes down to individual choice at all. So I don't think that, I think that to, to say that like for me to like not wear makeup or to not do spawn con is like, is the solution is just kind of the same flawed argument as the opposing idea, which is that like mm. choice is the ultimate liberation. Um, so I think like th th for me, the issue isn't really so much in what individual actions are and aren't feminist. Like, I think that you can believe in like female liberation or like broader liberation and do things that are just kind of you getting through the, the day. Like it is a, it is a, it's a flawed system. So many people have to participate in it just to exist and, and to feel okay. And that's like, I don't think that you need to feel bad about that. I think where I, where I take issue is, is that we've taken, um, we've, we've, we've decided to justify 
these actions and, and rework them to fit into a feminist framework that feels flawed to me. And, and I think the reason that happens is I think like it, social media is a big, plays a big role. Like if we think about the way that people are now brands, if you, what do you think? Like if you think about the primary mode of a brand, like an actual brand, it's to like be consistent, you know? Mm. And so I think when we make ourselves into brands, we feel like we also have to be completely consistent, but that's not really how people are in my, in my view. I think that people are a lot more complicated than that. And I think the part of the, there's like two forces at work that make us, um, that are sort of skewing feminism this way. And one of them is that we feel that because we identify with feminist ideas, therefore everything we do must be feminist, which is kind of a flattening. And the second one would be like the marketing of feminism, which is like this huge capitalist beast that is telling us over and over that it's empowering to spend money on cosmetics or skincare. So there's like these two ideas that are forcing us towards like this horizon of like feminism is actually just not doing anything to change the system. (laughs) And it, it, I feel like it just becomes like a self-defeating line of thought. Totally. When, when I did my book club, I think, which is maybe when I, around when I messaged you, we were reading Gia Tolentino's Trick Mirror and I brought up and I said, Mm -hmm. I I set everyone extra reading and I made them read your piece. I'm like a bad school teacher. (laughs) So I was like, you have to read this as well. And we all got into this bit of like an existential crisis because we realized the problem actually was just that we're calling all the shit feminist that isn't feminist. Like it's fine if you do it, like what you're saying, we shouldn't just have to be surviving as well. It's such a sad state and sorry state of the world that there is such a huge chasm between the rich and the poor, those who have and those who don't have. But but at the same time, like we shouldn't be expecting... We want, we want to be able to bring people up, but just because you have a certain level of privilege, like you making yourself suffer in, in thinking that's the name of feminism, like you're saying, that also doesn't help anyone. So just kind of do what you need to do to make your, you feel happy, but just stop framing that as a feminist act because that that's what makes us lazy, I think. This is what I was trying to say before because I felt like I was doing all these little feminist acts like, oh, I'm wearing makeup because actually it empowers me. It's like, then what yeah, actual... Yeah what actual action have I done? And obviously there are things outside of that that I was doing, but as you said, I was getting so caught up in the social media. And also there is a lovely, um, and maybe this is the, it's not just the white feminine side, but there is a huge sense of community with um, Mm -hmm. women literally supporting each other to do whatever the fuck they want, which is lovely. But again, it's still a subset of women that can do, that have the access to the choice in the first place. So yeah and yeah exactly that's i think that's really well put there's such an there's there is a community around it i think the problem is the like the ties with economic viability right with like makeup being like a billion dollar it's like a hundred billion dollar industry in the u.s i'm not sure what it is in the uk but i'm sure Mm. huge yeah and it's funny yeah i think like sorry you go oh you go ahead oh i think i was was just gonna say um like I do think that I've gained a lot by trying to like the idea of sort of acting according to my values. It, I do get something out of that, but it it is like personally, it is personally empowering at times, like whatever empowering even means. I do think, I think it's helped me. I wouldn't say again, like I don't think that it's the ultimate goals for everybody to like challenge themselves to drop these you know, binds. Um, 
but I think like on a personal level, I have, I do feel like I understand the mechanisms that are at work a little better having, having removed myself in some places, which by the way, I'm not completely out. Like, you know, I'm just as much as I, I, I participate as well. Just there are sort of marked places where I've tried to challenge my desires. And I think it's interesting to realize, at least like with makeup, when I stopped wearing it, I realized, um, like I realized the impact that the impact of like waking up every day and thinking that like I couldn't leave the house, like just what that message sends to you about like your worth. Mm. It's like this weird invisible force. And I, I don't really, I don't even know if it's worth getting into like the whole makeup thing. Cause obviously it's really complicated, but I do think that there's something to be gained um, just by sometimes examining the ideas that are kind of fueling our behaviors. I think it's really, I think the makeup one's actually such an interesting place to start. Cause when, what I was actually going to say a second ago was when I first got into feminism or started learning about it, it was kind of not pre-choice feminism, but that wasn't so much of the moment. It really was like, you've got a challenge, like why you're wearing this? Why are you doing this? And the whole concept of me learning about feminism was like, is this me or is this my conditioning? Every single action that I took I kept trying to figure out why I was mm-hmm. doing things and then make the decision based on what I wanted to do but outside of the conditioning so it sounds like choice but it's not it's more like um I was just it made me I did the same as you kind of stopped wearing as much makeup I tried not to I was like, actually I hate body contrasts they're the most ugly do you remember those ones that were like ripped like striped like, oh, yeah. stri- oh and I used to like always buy them I was like I don't like them this isn't how I like to dress and that was like a liberation even though it's like doesn't it's not really and someone else might love body contrasts but what's interesting is then over the years it's like reversed and all these things which I kind of made peace with thinking I'm better off without them actually and they're just part of my conditioning it suddenly became like in vogue to be like no this thing which is very much in line with the things that women are supposed to do is now feminist if you choose to do it and I kind of feel like I've gone back in time (laughs) in my (laughs) Yeah. decision making because the the rhetoric around it has become I guess not less radical but it's it's obviously if you can stick with the status quo and feel the same amount of um like as if you're doing the same then it's much easier to just kind of float through life make decisions you would have made anyway and feeling like you've done the right thing and and the makeup thing was interesting so I remember Zadie Smith did a piece about how um she couldn't believe that her daughter wanted to spend so long in front of the mirror. Do you remember this piece? Um, or she spoke to the Guardian yeah, at the literary festival and it got so much backlash. And and the thing that I learned about makeup then was about how, especially for trans communities, it can be a massive thing of safety or like it's a privilege. Like Zadie Smith's absolutely beautiful and has perfect skin. And everyone's talking about how much of a privilege it is to not be able to wear makeup. And I think that was the first introduction to me of the complexities of these arguments on those kind of superficial layers of choice if that makes Mm -hmm. sense yeah it does I think like I think maybe the the problem is that like the enemy is not people wearing makeup or people not wearing makeup the enemy Mm -hmm. is like you know patriarchal capitalism (laughs) (laughs) to just like throw out a, a really general vague term but I think like the you know it's hard to for me it was hard to give up makeup like I felt sometimes like feeling like I wasn't like knowing that I could be like more attractive with makeup you know people will say I I am also really lucky in that um you know I don't have uh like a lot of acne and things like things that make me that would make me feel really othered Mm. And, and so that's like definitely a privilege that can't go unstated but um 
even even for me, I think it was challenging to feel that way. And so I don't think that the solution is like, oh, well, everyone should be challenged because ultimately, like, we don't we aren't choosing to feel lesser than because of our faces. We, like that's that's an illusion. That's not. Um, I feel like a lot of companies want us to think that it's just in our head. Yes. You know, like, do you remember I Feel Pretty, that movie by Amy Schumer? Oh, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it, I actually recently rewatched it for some reason. But I remember reading a really great critique of that movie by Amanda Hess in the New York Times that was talking about how um, kind of the underlying moral of that movie was that, like, your self-consciousness is like all in your head. And like, if you just were confident, then everyone will be attracted to you. And you would be like, just getting just as much as like a conventionally hot person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. And, but, <laughs> yeah. It, it puts it, the onus on women or anybody who feels uh, marginalized to like, just have to just like love themselves. Exactly. And this is, that's what I was going to say to you. It's kind of like this punch down thing where, you know, it's always down to, it, it, it goes across the board. And actually, when you're saying like giving up makeup, it keeps saying, I've basically made a uh, vow to give up fast fashion and I've been doing really well. But again, I find it really hard to break up with just ordering stuff from Zara. Like I find myself putting stuff in my basket and being like, no, you can't buy it. And um, yeah. That's more of like an environmentalist thing, but it was so interesting because sometimes I go through these moments where I'm like, why can't I just, I'm like to my boyfriend, like, why can't I just buy a top? I just want to buy a top. Why is it my fault <laughs> that the planet is burning? And I think sometimes we feel like this about it's feminism. It's not. No, I know, but do you know no, what I mean? No, it's, it's just neoliberal bullshit. It's not your fault. This is like, it's the, it's the fucking billionaires who are profiting off of these industries. Like, it's it's systemic. I think that it's like a huge marketing campaign. Like it's, if you look back at like the biggest marketing campaigns around like recycling and uh, like other um, sort of uh, campaigns to get people to take personal responsibility for the environment, it's, they're all like funded by like oil companies. Mm. (laughs) Like it's, it's not, I think there is a huge marketing effort to, make people think that it's their fault when there's not actually choice for that many people. What we need to fight for is better choices. You know what I mean? Yes. And I remember, I remember someone saying to me that um, the best ad campaign for that feeling was when I think it was Cheryl did an ad talking about the, they basically invented like the carbon footprint and they were like ways that you can reduce your carbon footprint. And it was like a really clever way of making people feel responsible for you know, what we put out into the world. But it's it's so funny because you, you've made me recognize you're right that the choice, it doesn't really matter what the choice is, whether it's the, the so-called feminist one or if it's the more conventional choice, the choice in of itself is kind of irrelevant because you're still only choosing from a really small pool of choices anyway. Um, and they're all going to end up in the same place. Yeah. I think that's like what I find so inspiring about like... Um, kind of the more collective action approach, which is the idea that instead of everybody getting a moral lesson and us like having to reach every individual and get them to change their actions in a broken system that is going, it's going to be very hard for them to change their actions because everything is set up to do the opposite. Instead of doing that, what if we like came together? What if we all acknowledged that these things were not liberating and came together and demanded 
basically like different choices, different options, like, you know, better policies that are more like economic. Obviously, like feminism is mostly about like the economic well-being of like poor women and black women and the people who are like who, who like this subordination of a certain gender is like trickling down all the way to like mm. huge systemic problems you know that's what needs to be fixed <laughs> not to like not to make it too huge but no and I think it was really good because uh, I'm, I'm trying to find it now but there's a piece in in the essay where you talk about this as well and you're like instead of instead of you know making all women no matter your body shape on Instagram feel like they're sexy why don't we demand that you know we have a better value system then everyone deserves to feel hot because actually when you really think about like that fight it's because it's so ingrained in us like you were saying like I could look more attractive with makeup you don't realize how much of that how much of a pull we have towards this I find it sometimes when I know it's so valued yeah it's it's so insidious that I don't it's only when I'm trying to think of something like it was like the other day I was thinking about what to wear to my boyfriend's birthday and I love wearing like suits and trousers I never really wear dresses and all of a sudden I decided that I was going to wear like a silky a slinky mini dress I was going deep up for hours and hours like searching for this dress and I realized it's because I'd been looking on Instagram all day and just seen all these girls looking at me and it was just it, I know that sounds so stupid but it was like somewhere deep down inside me I wanted this validation of looking like this woman that I'm supposed to look like or whatever it is so much so that I wasted like two yeah. hours of my life on Depop trying to find a dress. <laughs> it was like, what a waste of my life. <laughs> totally. And I think that like that, something that this reminds me of is like body neutrality. Have you heard of this mm. as opposed to like body positivity? Yes. Yes. It, it's like, because it, it, I think, you know, and that's not to say that there's not like personal empowerment. Again, it always comes back to like personal versus like systemic, but uh, and I even think that there's some systemic value, of course, in, like, seeing different bodies, like, huge, huge and important. Um, but I think that, like, there's always going to be this, like, hierarchy on Instagram. So, like, maybe now it's not just thin women that are held up, but it's, like, it's, like, rich women who can, like, afford to have, like, incredible skin and, like, really cool clothes. Like, they have time to, like, develop a style. Maybe they have time to, like, take great photos. And, like, there's just, there's different there's like there's still this hierarchy that it's just like the, the details are changing and not that that's not positive in some ways like I think that there's it, it's broadening but it's still making people feel left out yeah and I think that this is the other thing that's so interesting and, and layered I guess about this and I think what I'm starting to peel away from when your article really cemented this for me is talking about things through the lens of it being feminism and rather looking at it as something else I feel like we need like a different word but in terms of Emily Ratajkowski talking about um feminism I think in some ways actually that might be helpful for a young woman who's never even heard of it and there's ideas about like visibility just even on the concept and that could I guess in some small way have an impact in that sense and you know as you say like it is really important to see different bodies like I think even I personally found it so even though I'm in like a straight sized slim white able-bodied body for me to see a diversity of bodies on my feed is also I just think better for for everyone all round but I also agree that the focus is still then on women's bodies rather than like a, a more useful conversation about systemic change whether that comes to 
you know, economic change or racism or, or culture, whatever it might be. Um, and I think that this is where I got so tied up in knots because even as, as we're talking, I feel like we're not holding up part of the net that we're supposed to be supporting when we're having this, this conversation. Do you, do, you feel, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, I think like th- the problem is like I think maybe our goals are too small. Like, I, and this is kind of what you mentioned, but like, is our goal for like all different types of people to be influencers? It just feels like I, I mean I don't find that super inspiring. Like I think it's maybe inspiring within the system, but if we're trying to think outside of it, I would I would probably like rather that we like coalesce. <clears throat> Sorry, coalesce around like a different set of values. I think mm. about like I, you know what I think about all the time is um, I'm trying to think of what this what the book was. Uh, it was like a it was a I'm gonna forget what it was called. But I was reading about um, kind of like what happened to feminism between like the so-called first wave and second wave. So, like, if we think about the first wave being, like, suffrage, women's right to vote, which is, like, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, and then second wave, which was, like, in the 60s and 70s, and it was, like, you know, bra burning and stuff like that. Um, There was actually, I think we, we tend to think of, like, feminism as always progressing on, like, a steady incline, like women are always getting more power, but that's not actually true. Like, and by the way, I'm not like a feminist scholar. I'm just like your average, like interested writer and maybe like cultural commentator. But, um, in the like fifties after the war, when a lot of women had gone into the workforce because men had vacated their jobs, um, there was this sort of shift in power and women were gaining a lot more power and financial and otherwise. And, there was like basically a huge marketing effort to like put women back in the home. And this was like the birth of modern marketing as well. Like, you know, we always think of marketing as always having been around, but like this is when like shaving your legs became like more universally done or maybe, maybe nationally. Um, I'm mostly thinking of like the U S but there was like, this effort to bring women back into the home, there's a valorization of like the housewife and like a huge culture was created around this idea. And like the, the whole like women's, the progress that had been gained was like completely like unraveled. And this is what ended up leading to like the kind of bra burning era, which was like, no, we're not going to ascribe to these like really um, limiting like uh, ideas about what womanhood is. Um, and so I think like now it, what we're doing, I think, is embracing these ideas of what womanhood is um, as a form of feminism. And I think it feels some, in some ways to me like a regression. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, yeah. 
And I know what you're talking about. It's the 1950s. It's literally when they do like the ads about what makes a good housewife and like do those little yeah. pamphlets about like how to look after your husband and all of that. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's interesting to think about. You're right. Cause it's almost like we have like a real reverence for what it is to be a woman in like very stereotypical ways. And suddenly, I mean, there's a lot of divergence of that. That's that's generalizing so much. But that's what I feel that, and I do think the rise of social media, and I know that we've always been obsessed with beauty, but I feel like beauty, as you say, like it's been commodified so much more, it's worth so much more. And that this fascination with even the conversations we have around feminism, like I, I try not to, I try to have most of my conversations not centered around white privileged women like me, because for the most part, I have every privilege that my white male counterparts do. And so it'd be redundant for me to talk about, you know, fighting for equality when I also work in an industry that favors women anyway. So I try not to have these conversations, but around the table or like when I'm having a general discussion, it always comes back down to beauty and the inequality of the way that women are treated on, again, things which we've been debating for years, whether that's like catcalling or it's not that they're not important, but it just shows what you're saying that like stuff hasn't changed that much because the conversation when it comes to the separation of, of not necessarily even gender, because obviously we know all those different intersections are really unevenly weighted in lots of ways. But I just feel like every time it just comes back to discussing and dissecting how women and their sexuality is either lauded or disemployed in certain scenarios. And I I wonder if that's why we find it like so people like some people replied to me about your piece with Emily Ratajkowski and they they found it hard to get their head around how you could separate Emily talking from about her experiences which were abhorrent that probably the majority of women could either relate to on some level or know someone who's been through a similar experience and her upholding the same things which kind of allow some of those things to happen I feel like I'm being so inarticulate does any of what I've just said make sense no I think I get what you're saying like it's like victim blaming yeah yeah kind yeah. of like yeah 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 and I I definitely heard some of those critiques as well I think my response and I thought that was I think most the most useful version of that feedback I got was like well on what grounds are we critiquing the piece like is it a, is it a personal essay that's kind of just adding to the me too chorus or is it meant to be like politically expedient and I think that that's a fair question to ask I think I like I went towards the latter because of the the, the framework that she's been pushing for like her whole career um like I think maybe what might what have been more compelling is for her to say like hey, I've been arguing for a decade that it's empowering to commodify yourself, like do it first. And there is power in controlling your own image. And then, but now I've realized looking back on my whole career that I haven't had that much power. Like there are big limits to that framework. And like, what does that say about the system? And it's not so much about her deserving anything as much as it's it was hard for me to read this piece and have it be lauded without it without that like broader conversation being had it just felt like a further like cementing of this idea that just speaking out about something is is kind of the end goal when really it should just be like the first step does that make sense 
Totally. And and there's a few things. So it's such a good point that you said that so well. And it's almost like we're in denial of the fact that so one, I feel like sometimes when you make it in a system, because you've made it, you then have to defend it. So you'll hear women who are really high up, like CEOs or whatever, like the, Cheryl Sandberg, for example, then giving all these anecdotes yeah, yeah. of all the things that happened to them on the way up. But because they're so insistent on, I guess, protecting their own success, they don't ever question like what it would have been like, as you say, like if that glass ceiling hadn't been been there or if they hadn't had to traverse through perhaps like it's not screwing other people over, but you really have to like shimmy your way into getting to the top in these structures. So it, it, that's a really clever way of putting it. And I wonder if that is because th- there is a level of wanting to protect the system that you're in, which is completely antithetical to the idea that then what you're talking about is feminist because the system is the problem, as yeah. we've been saying. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I, I have a lot of empathy for, the, like, wanting to justify your journey. Like, the internet is a really scary place. Like, I find it very hard to be complicated on the internet because it's nuance is not transmitted very well. Like, the idea that you could have one ideal and have um, and have done things that are sort of to use your word, like antithetical to it is to invite a lot of like shaming and a lot of, um, vitriol. So like, and that's not to say that like I'm defending Sheryl Sandberg. I think that she's like a great example of like a blatant capitalist who's like done horrible things more broadly because of her connection with Facebook, which is like a very just dark force. <laughs> but like, I think that in general, I understand, I understand like Emily's defensive posture um, because that's, I think that's kind of the, like I said, it's like that two part beast of like a, the, the internet wanting like us to flatten ourselves into like a, a, an icon or a brand of like one idea and everything must follow suit. And also this idea that like corporations like, and, and the billionaires who run them have like twisted the conversation so that, uh, like things that are not liberatory, like are. <laughs> so yes. it's like this two-pronged approach <laughs> yeah I think like it's I'm like I think it I've been thinking about um like if we think about that marketing push in the mid-century to like bring women back into the home it sort of reminds me of like what we've done with girl boss feminism which is like no 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 like don't push against these dark forces like embrace them Mm. they're not the exact same but it's almost like a second it's like maybe it's like a one step forward two steps back thing or maybe two and one back (laughs) whatever's the one that's like not that's like less depressing (laughs) um and maybe like i don't know if you think about i was just reading this article um about ursula or i guess it's ursula Le Guin's birthday today (laughs) do you know who ursula Le Guin is no i don't know who that is sorry okay no, no, not at all. She's like a she's a prominent um, science fiction writer, but also just like a thinker. Um, she died, I think, a couple of years ago. But um, she, somebody tweeted a quote of hers, which is, um, "We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable, but then so did the divine right of kings." And I was thinking about how, like, what if uh, in kind of the, in feudalism the people who were being oppressed had like rebranded their oppression to like be empowering. <laughs> mm. Wouldn't that be like, obviously that would be 
counter to like their liberation. But I feel like in some ways that's what we've done. And part of it's yeah. like a coping mechanism, but yeah. When we're talking, I feel like we're in a Russian doll. And every time you like lift the layer off, another one just like pops up. <laughs> So it's like, I just want to like, like go back and be like, no, I didn't mean that. Or like, because it's so true. You can't, it's really hard to dissect what an individual does because as you say, like I am the most flawed person. And it, I actually wrote this down because I wanted to say this because I loved it in the piece where you're, you quote someone else and then you say, um, you said, a friend of mine now casually refers to as informed in sexualism, the effort to write oneself out of corrupted alignments by conscientiously demonstrating an ability to comprehend them and I was about to say oh my god that's what I do and that is like meta because I'm basically saying I do the thing where you say you do the thing in order to get out of being responsible for doing the thing <laughs> and I'd like written it down yeah. to tell you that I do that and I was like oh my god that's like inception because um that's it's so, so funny whenever I become self-conscious in what I'm saying about someone else I think god because I am this broad person who for instance I talk about sustainable fashion all the time but I still eat meat because I've decided that my battle is close and I I don't like I don't think I'm ready to give up a steak every now and then and that's so flawed and as you say like the internet has no room for that but those are all like that that's fine you can have those like I know that's a, a funny example but it is hard when we try and like hold up or use someone else's life or journey or whatever you want to use as a vehicle to explain these things because if you then like put it in comparison to yourself it feels too difficult if, if that makes sense yeah I mean I think like for me the solution is like is for it's, and whatever I mean this is all like me just exploring it because I'm just as like in it as everyone else like do not proclaim to have all the answers at all um, but for me, what like uh, it feels more inspiring than like than kind of fixing every all my actions to be like perfectly aligned with my morals. Although I find that like personally gratifying where I can, um, it is more so to like to fight policy and like those in power to uh, like use our collective power to like fight for better policies that like actually help people and that actually address um climate change and like hold the billionaires and the corporations to account who are like responsible for you know 90 percent of the problem and who are the ones who are giving us such shitty choices in the first place yeah and it's it's interesting because um and i think maybe covid's like a good way of exploring this but i for a time would very much subscribe and i still kind of do what you're saying is like depending on your level of privilege you kind of have a level of responsibility to change certain actions whether that's about like consumerism or how you speak about things online in order to make sure that you're not being exclusive or whatever it might be but obviously it's a sliding scale of like how much you even have access to, how much choice you have. But then I was saying to you, I'd suddenly get that up and be like throwing my toys out the pram. Like, why is everything I do have to be so challenging? And it's interesting watching how people have reacted to COVID, because especially in the UK, there's like really specific laws about what you can do. But obviously they're not very good and our government is a bit shit and the regulations they're doing don't seem to make any sense. But some people are following these rules and other people are kind of following their own rules where they're maybe being a bit more careful. And there's a lot of kind of prejudice and um anger between people I sit on Twitter all the time like well I feel like I've been isolating for ages and other people are just going out and doing this and other people saying well I but this is what the government said we could do and it's so fascinating to watch people kind of really take so much onus on themselves when 
like as you say there's no lobbying to do to make changes from the government like why do we all feel so such a heavy weight of personal responsibility that it ends up in angst and anxiety and people feeling like that I guess that's how it that's what's happening kind of across the board there is just not enough punching up to use like a really tired phrase no I think that's a really good way of putting it I agree I think I get really frustrated with I don't know, I keep using the word neoliberal, but I think it's the best way to, to describe the, the focus on individual. And I think that it's part of, it's part of an effort by those in power. Like, if you think about like, the, at least in the US, like the, what they call like the birth of neoliberalism was in the like, 70s and 80s, when the first the Republicans and then the Democratic Party started taking, um, like, huge lobbying like a lot of money from corporations to fund their campaigns. Mm-hmm. And like there was this shift away from it being more democratic about like, you know, pleasing your constituents towards pleasing your uh, donors. And um, like this, this, and suddenly the power wasn't with us anymore, but they, but like corporations and people in power, like want us to think it's, it's with us. Because it takes the heat off of them. <laughs> I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but I feel like the 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 push towards like it's all it's all about our actions is is just an idea that serves the most powerful. Mm-hmm. And and then I guess there's always layers to this, but I think Gia Tolentino says it in her book, and she talks about how to tweet something or to like be part of a conversation around feminism or whatever it is also becomes just as valuable in the eyes of certain groups as it would be to take the action. So that's another weird layer that happens where you're right, everyone is, thinks that they have to take individual action, but even if that individual action makes no difference systemically, it still holds some weight societally because you are seen to be doing the right thing, inverted commas, even if that one small action wouldn't be as impactful as, say, I don't know, campaigning for change or lobbying for change or whatever it might be. It's weird how we've also, and that I, I assume that will have come from some kind of capitalist drive as well in order to make that worthwhile, but it does, it also does mean something on like a, to people on a personal and cultural level as well so that's where it's like got mixed up like where activism used to be not used to be I guess as you said it's always been messy but where there might have been like an end goal and a drive to change one legislation or to do something activism in of itself is fashionable now it's like a brand it's like part of your brand yeah yeah and it's it's really divorced from like I always come back to like it being divorced from like economic problems like a lot of times like if I think about policing language online for instance uh, you know and that's what this I don't think that I would never argue like language isn't important as a writer I obviously think it is but sometimes I think that we get caught up in policing like increasingly minute little behaviors online and forgetting that actually it has nothing to do with the liberation of the like supposedly wronged class like, like the economic liberation, like I think all of the, the, the issues, I mean, I think it always comes down to class and that class is like really undervalued in this whole conversation. Like, I mean, at least in the U S it's really, really bad. <laughs> like the, the economic disparity is like emergency proportions, like billionaires have made like almost a trillion dollars in the pandemic while like 
people have looked, most of America has looked further into poverty. Like, obviously there's, it's like such a huge issue and like classes continually cast aside for like, like, I guess you could call it like ID politics, this idea that it's about like, um, being like respectful online, like using the, like the perfect language when I'm like, does, does that help the people who are poor and like not on online? They're like not on the part of this discourse. They're just like, they're in a cycle of poverty and marginalization. It's like, they feel really separate. You know what I mean? Like the internet has this whole digital landscape that feels like not, it's more about like a, a kind of a hypothetical fight about like yes. your brand being like as virtuous as possible. And doesn't actually have to do with like the betterment of the people it's supposedly aiming to protect. Yeah, and we definitely have the exact same issue over here, especially like it, it, it's one of the first episodes I did this season um, is with like kind of a political commentator that she she's basically a communist. That's like her thing. She said once on a show and everyone's like, wow. Um, but she's really clever and she talks about exactly this. She's writing a book about these kind of culture wars where it sees people getting really focused on identity politics and like going over them so much so that it kind of alienates both sides to what's fundamentally important which is kind of getting policies in place to protect people from poverty like you're saying or you know making sure women have places to go if they're in domestic violence situations or making sure that children get food which is like a massive thing that's going on in the UK at the minute about school meals I don't know if you've seen it but yes I agree with you and mm. it's interesting how when I'm on Twitter everything feels so heightened and I start to believe that's real life and I don't the same as you because you're a writer and you're online and you blog and your work's online if you sometimes can get start to believe that that's kind of um how these conversations happen in real life and then i'll go into like a real life situation and i'm like wow that is really just happening online but that's also what gets picked up by the mainstream media as well and oh so, my god yes <laughs> the internet is so scary <laughs> i feel like i'm so i'm so afraid of the internet to be honest like and I, I was talking about this a lot actually like since we're talking about the emily radikowski piece which is like i was getting some feedback some critical feedback on that piece um, and I, I, I wasn't afraid of it. Like I thought like, Oh, this is thoughtful. And I thought a lot of people who liked my piece that they also liked Emily's and they were kind of like holding two ideas in their head at once. There was like, there felt like a kind of nuance and an embracing of kind of really examining ideas that felt really different from the other pushback I sometimes get like on really benign things that I feel mm -hmm. like I'm just being like, kind of per like misunderstood in bad faith. That is way more stressful to me than like, than kind of good faith criticism. Because like, I don't think it's bad to, like I think the critique of ideas is good and important, but I think sometimes it gets conflated with just like policing someone's behavior, at, like for the sake of it, when you know that like they didn't mean that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and no, and I love what you said. I did the same thing. Like I read Emily's piece and I thought it was great and I read yours and I thought they were both great. And I think that that's, that's, that's that vision of someone like holding those two pieces in their hands is the exact opposite of what the internet normally allows you to do that's a really nice like, totally. image but what's interesting is with the funny thing is that the people doing the policing normally are the people who as well I would align and maybe I've been like that before where we and this is kind of like a existential another existential crisis I'm having about how I um, operate in the way that I talk about things because my podcast is quite liberal and I'm quite like left-leaning yeah yeah and it's funny because it's normally the people that are on my side of the argument that are also shutting down these conversations almost imminently without even really questioning what it is. So, for example, say someone who maybe is in my audience 
um, online who saw that your piece was a critique on Emily and without even reading it, they've taken that to mean a bit like with choice feminism that you are like kind of slandering another woman and so you can't even read it. And I wonder if sometimes I'm worried that I now start doing that because I'm so um, worried to keep my posture in terms of being on the right side of history with issues. Mm-hmm. That like if it's come from the wrong person or if it's come from the other side of the argument, maybe I don't even engage. And I, then I got worried, like, what am I doing? I'm just putting myself into an even deeper of an echo chamber. And I don't know if I'll ever escape. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's like a fear from a certain type um, of like, like liberal that doesn't want that is so, af- and I think it comes from a place of fear, fear, like so much fear of maybe like fascism or the right, the right, that like you don't want to invite any critique or like nuance into arguments. Like it just needs to be like, I think, you know, to use a kind of tragic example, I would say like the discourse around um, police shootings in America, there is um, a, a, a discourse around how we present um, black men and women and trans people in the in kind of in the news as being good people or bad people. And there's this like there's this um, there's this idea that like we need to hold up someone as a good guy who gets murdered by the police. Uh, um, when really, right. like, you shouldn't have to be a good person to not get murdered yes. by the police. <laughs> and so I think, like, but, uh, sometimes people are scared to say, like, hey, this person was flawed. Like, maybe this person even broke laws. Maybe they weren't, um, maybe they weren't, like, quote, unquote, an angel, as, like, that famous setting, like, saying he was no angel. Um, but that doesn't mean that they deserve to get shot. And I think, like, we're so afraid sometimes of those arguments that, we only take in the data that supports a, a more simple view. And then the other side takes in the data that's also true that supports the kind of opposite, supposedly opposite view. And it like further divides people. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. And you're, you're right. I do exactly that. Like I will only, because I think also right now it's so, it's terrifying for people who are from those marginalized communities that are constantly getting attacked and oppressed and killed literally. So you do feel like, well, if I can, do anything to protect or you know make sure that that isn't something that's going to continue then I want to put forward this image as you say that people will maybe get behind more but we shouldn't have to like it shouldn't be that only white people are allowed to be flawed and everyone like white straight cis het men and and women can be flawed and everyone else has to be as you said an angel in order to get that level of respect I wonder if that maybe you're right maybe that's kind of where we're going a bit wrong it's like we shouldn't have to not lie but um you know, like kind of falsify things in order to get our point across. Maybe that's where it's kind of going wrong. That's an interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I guess I like, maybe it leaves us, it just leaves us more uh, vulnerable to like counterpoints because it's it's not really exactly the full truth. Um, I don't know. I, mean, I think about that with with like feminism too, which is you know don't critique women. Like, well, what if I want to critique like Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> Um, or like, or, or, or like you know, you know Cheryl Sandberg, or um, you know Sarah Palin, or uh, whatever. Insert like woman who is kind of uh, 
oppressed others. And it's just like it's a self-defeating ideology. Well, it just doesn't it just doesn't scale <laughs> to return to that expression. The bit that I did actually really love in Trick Mirror is when she talked about how um, this can also like be weaponized against. You know, when she was talking about Melania Trump's coat. Um, did you read Trick Mirror, or did you? I did. I'm I'm trying to remember that part. Can you remind well, me? She's talking about how um, it's really funny. It's not funny, but basically people can use this idea that women can't critique women as in, in their own favor because it's anti-feminist. So when Melania Trump wore that coat and people were like, oh my God, this is, um, I can't believe she's worn that. It's obviously something like she's sending a message or whatever. Trump's party and everyone could be like, I can't believe that you would critique Melania because that's so anti-feminist of you because she's a woman. And it was, it can be used against us in that like women can then almost be used as a bit like someone like um, Candace Owens or someone that's kind of really used by a, a political party or a figure to be like, we have a woman on the team. So you can't say she's wrong because that would be anti-feminist. Right. It's like the limits of like, we're getting into the territory of like the, the limits of um, like representation just for the sake of it, you know, yes. where it's like, well, we didn't change this. Like, this story is still about, like... <laughs> well, have you watched Emily in Paris? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I just saw you did a okay, podcast well, about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen. I want to listen. I'm excited oh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, this is something that we talked about, actually, which is, like, you know, this, this show, it's about, like, American workism and the idea that, like, you know her arc is not about her changing or evolving it's about her like stubbornly insisting on the idea that like salvation is found in like increasingly creative marketing campaigns and like continually to just live and breathe your work like obviously there's like huge capitalistic it's just it's not it's a complete embracing of a lot of these forces that a lot of people are trying to resist mm. so imagine if they had just like ran an extra algorithm and decided to like cast a black lead for instance but like nothing else about the show changed it would be a pretty hollow gesture right like it would be like okay well this show is still and that's not to say it doesn't have merit for like the candy it is like i think it's a very it's a very like american type of art but um like that would be an example of like representation being sort of like not understanding like why it's needed and just sort of yes. trying to check a box to like make liberals happy <laughs> to be tokenistic and I think I kind of yeah, that's exactly. one of the things I kind of love it was just at least it did what it said on the tip like it was so Darren Star it they hadn't I just it didn't feel like it had tried in any way to be well, apart from like the sex toy or whatever it wasn't trying to be I mean it was the opposite of woke it was just we could talk about this for hours I don't even want to get into it but <laughs> <laughs> but do you think it was like what about all the like me too stuff like it's like kind of trying to make her out to be this like light social justice warrior <laughs> but i just thought it was so insulting to the french <laughs> because it's like <laughs> oh 100 you know so it's and also what she was saying i almost feel like you're kind of past that like any advertising agency even if no not even definitely from a very cynical point of view would it now know not to do campaigns like that so it, I just feel like it didn't even land because it was I don't know when they made it but it just felt like it was either a bit too old or it, 
I don't know. It just didn't feel like it. It made sense. But I love. I mean, I loved the show. I watched. I watched it really quickly. Um, <laughs> yeah, same thing. It's just. It's funny. I like how much conversation it started, though. It's so hilarious that it's become. And I'm like, I'm really intrigued. They'll have to do a season two, I imagine. And I wonder where they'll go with it if it'll, you know, trans- yeah, transcend. Yeah, I'm so curious too. Oh my God. Well, before we yeah. start talking about hours, because I feel like I could literally talk to you all day. Um, Same. I ask everyone their three favorite books. Is that a really stressful thing to spring on you at this point in the interview? <laughs> oh my God. It could be mm. any, it doesn't have to be like top three. It could be like your three fave that you're reading right now. Well, I can think of like, I was just recently thinking about books that had like impacted my writing, which might be like mm. kind of a boring way into the topic but I do have those kind of like in my mind recently oh my god not boring at all I'd love to hear them okay okay cool um so three that I can think of that these are just like ones I've read in the last couple years but um one time one would be No Time to Spare by Ursula Le Guin who I mentioned earlier um this is like a it's not really a memoir I guess it's more of an essay collection but it's actually just a publishing of her blog post that she wrote in her 80s and it's it's written in this completely smart and specific but irreverent way that made me think like I want to write like that she's writing about really simple things that um but in a way that takes you by surprise Mm. and it's just it's delightful it's the kind of it's like very inspiring to me as a writer um another one that comes to mind is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro uh, oh. This is the kind of sci-fi book. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I've definitely heard. I'm just trying to think of when. How old is it? I'm trying to remember if I've read. I really. Mm-hmm. Maybe I haven't. I've definitely heard of it, what but I don't know. I'm just Googling when it was published. Oh, no, 2005. 2005. So it's quite a while ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a movie in like 2010. Maybe that's why. Um, maybe anyway um he writes in a really it's kind of it's like a dystopian sci-fi novel which isn't typically my type of book i gravitate towards but it um it's not written at all like a sci-fi novel which i it's a little bit more like it's it's very um cerebral and um it talks a lot about the he's called like the poet of the unspoken some people call him that. And it's like, he writes about kind of these small dynamics that are happening between people, just like two everyday friends that are such powerful forces in our relationships, but we don't really think to like spell them out in the way he does. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that uh, uh, very well, but I just remember feeling like I wanted to write just about simple little things in a way that was as complex and interesting as he does. Oh, wow. I'm definitely going to read that. You should. It's also just like a genuinely entertaining and like gripping book. I d- highly recommend. Um, and the last one is On Writing Well by William Zinser. This is like purely a book about writing, but I found it to be, I'm finding, I know that I'm saying this, there's definitely a thread between these three books. Um, but what Zinzer does is sort of verbalizes something that you might intrinsically understand about what makes good writing, but he really explains it. And so he's pulling apart something like that we might assume or that we have never thought to put words to. And it helped me better understand 
what made a really good sentence or like a powerful story. And I just like, there are certain things I learned from the book that I have still think about every time I'm writing. I love that. I really want to read all of those. They're really good recommendations. And funnily enough, the thing that you're like searching for, that you're holding on to in those, in those three books was honestly what I took away from your piece. That's why I was like so desperate to talk to you because I think you really wrote something down. You know, when you read something, you're like, oh my God, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, like, my favorite writing. And then I was like, oh, I get it now. This makes sense. And I couldn't stop talking about it. I honestly spoke about it for about five days. Like anyone, I was talking to my boyfriend about it because it was just, it was just the way you put it. It was so simple. And it wasn't like I hadn't thought about it before. I just didn't even know necessarily that that's what I was thinking. Um, so I'm so grateful yeah. that you, oh, that you came on so to me. If people want to like follow your work or find more of what you're doing, where can people come and find you? Because I know you can, you can pay a subscription to your newsletter and let us know where to do all of that kind of stuff. Um, yes. Um, so my newsletter is called Maybe Baby. You can find it at hayleynauman.substack.com. You might just be able to like Google Maybe Baby newsletter. I hope that that works. I've never done that before. Um, but that's where you can see I, my newsletter is mostly free. Every Sunday I do a free one, but I have a weekly Tuesday podcast and a monthly advice column that is only for paying subscribers. So that's um, $5 a month. But I also, like, if, if people want to check me out on Instagram, I feel like that's where I'm sharing or updating a lot about the newsletter and just other general things. Um, so that is at Haleymer. <laughs> I'm realizing now that none of my, like, handles are easy to transmit verbally. <laughs> but <Don't>, H-A-L-E-M-U-R. <laughs> don't worry. I could put all of that in the show notes and the link to your okay, great. <laughs> oh well thank you so much for joining me it's been such a treat um and yeah thank you so much for having me it was so nice to talk to you and um yeah I'm always like learning and finding new ways to think about these things so I always invite conversation and I don't I don't feel like I am uh, done thinking about these things so definitely invite people to weigh in yeah amazing well thank you everyone for listening as well and I will see you next week bye bye Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.